Well, guys, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. It's a blessing last week having Pastor Bill with us. Such a great word. So timely. I did not ask him to teach that. You know, people wonder like, oh, you know, a guest teacher comes. Do you tell him what to teach on? I'm like, no. I always say, hey, you hear from the Lord. You seek the Lord. You hear from the Lord. Whatever he gives you for us is going to be awesome. And what a great, great word from 1 Corinthians 13 last week. If you didn't uh, listen to that, I encourage you to go back. You can uh, find it online or on our church app. Such a great teaching. But this morning, we're going to continue our studies of the book of Acts, jumping back in. We're going to be looking today at the journey from Ephesus to Miletus. Not a very profound title, but there's lots of traveling happening in our section of verses that we're going to be looking at this morning. And hopefully some things that we'll be able to take away here. But our main text is going to be Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. We're going to read verse 1 and... Consider some context as we begin our study here. Acts chapter 20, verse 1, says, After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. Paul, as we've been seeing over the last month or so, he'd spent three years in the city of Ephesus, the capital of the province of Asia Minor in the Roman Empire of that day, the third largest city in the Roman Empire, stayed there almost three years, about three years total, the longest he had stayed in any one city in any of his missionary journeys up to this point. And God accomplished a lot through Paul's time of ministry there, as we saw throughout chapter 19. But it seems that Paul's time in Ephesus was was cut short, cut short of him wanting to stay until Pentecost, probably because of that riot that we saw at the end of chapter 19, which Paul must have viewed as the Lord closing the door on his time there. I think many of us being in Paul's shoes would probably come to the same conclusion after that. I think God's closed the door. I think it's time to move on. God's done a lot here. Lots happened but I'm probably going to die if I stay here any longer, and I think God still has more for me uh, here in this world to accomplish. God had given Paul this amazingly great and effective door, effective opportunity to preach the gospel, to make disciples in Ephesus, an open door that we're told in Acts 19 led to all who lived in Asia Minor, both Jews and Greeks, hearing the word of the Lord Jesus. That that kind of spread happened in just a two-year span of time as Paul sort of hunkered down and, and just taught daily from the school of Tyrannus. But with those open doors, there were many adversaries. And we consider this aspect of Paul's perspective two Sundays ago when we focus in on what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 8 and 9. And after everything calmed down with the riot, the the mob, because of the opposition of the idol makers in Ephesus, Paul, sensed the Lord moving him on, he calls the disciples to himself. He embraces them. See, the compassion of Paul here, he wasn't 
disconnected from people. He wasn't just behind a pulpit. He was there. He was among the people. He was daily with them. He was giving his life for them, spending himself constantly in here, embracing them before departing. And so we're told he departed to go to Macedonia, the area of northern Greece, just across the Aegean Sea from where Ephesus was located. But his departure here didn't lead him to sail from Ephesus straight across to Macedonia. Instead, we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 that he traveled northwest to the region of Mycenae in the northwestern corner of modern-day Turkey and went to the city of Troas first because God had opened another door for Paul to preach Christ's gospel. Anytime there was any sort of open door from the Lord, Paul was going to step through it. And he did that again in the city of Troas. But after not being able to find uh, Titus, a co-laborer in the gospel, he said his goodbyes to the believers in Troas. He departs by ship for Macedonia. And we have to remember that while Paul was still in the city of Ephesus, as we saw in Acts chapter 19, verses 21 and 22, that he had purposed in his spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia, southern Greece, then to head to Jerusalem, and then he said he wanted to go to Rome. And while we're going to see Paul pass through Macedonia and Achaia in our study today, his trip to Jerusalem and then to Rome are really two major points that Luke highlights as we move forward through the rest of of the book of Acts as Paul's going to be arrested in Jerusalem and then taken as a prisoner to Rome, where actually we're going to kind of see that at the end of Acts chapter 28, it just leaves us sort of hanging. Paul being under house arrest, ministering kind of freely, even though he was, uh, you know, still waiting to be seen and to go before Caesar Nero. But With that context in mind, let's continue on and read verses 2 through 4. Acts 20, verse 2, it says, Now when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed three months. And when the Jews plotted against him, as he was about to sail to Syria, he he decided to return through Macedonia. And Sopater, uh, a man who made soap, no, He was a soapiter. He gifted in soap making. If you ever, anyways, not real. Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia. Also, Aristarchus, we've seen this man already mentioned. He was one of the two men who was grabbed by the mob in Ephesus and taken into that theater. Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians and Gaius of Derby. And Timothy, and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. So, as Paul traveled over the region of Macedonia, this is where Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea were all located, we're told that he encouraged the believers in those areas with many words. You ever have someone speak to you with many words and leave feeling drained 
or discouraged or belittled or talked at. The many words was them talking about themselves the whole entire time. And it wasn't even a conversation. It was just that person kind of like giving you their monologue. Sometimes many words is not a good thing. You know, there's a passage in scripture that says, in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. You ever found that where we just start rambling, you're just saying stuff like, you'll say something really stupid. Like something just comes out of your mouth and you're like, why did I have to keep talking? Why, did, why couldn't I have stopped like 20 minutes earlier in the conversation or five minutes beforehand? Or why did I have to go that far? A lot of times, many words isn't necessarily producing encouragement in a conversation. Sometimes you just leave feeling like, I need some me time now. I need to have some quiet. Not so with any person's interactions with the Apostle Paul. He used his many words to encourage so that others would leave their time with him feeling poured into, feeling encouraged and built up and and genuinely valued and ministered to. Proverbs 18.21 tells us that death and life are in the power of the tongue. And I pray we learn from Paul's example in his life and ministry and use our tongues And sometimes that many words is not verbal. Sometimes it's our many words of using our fingers to text or to email or to post on social media that we would learn to use our many words to encourage and point others to Jesus Christ. That we would remember even in our typing that Death and life are in the power of the words that are communicated from us, even when they aren't verbal. There are people that are being killed all the time with words. Slaughtered and cut down and belittled and devalued. And guys, we need to learn to be a people that if... We use our words that we know how to use them in a way that's life-giving. So that when people interact with us, they're not leaving feeling like, holy cow, like I don't ever want to even talk to that person again. I don't want to read that person's social media post again. I I feel dirty afterwards. But that our interactions with other people would be in such a way where other people sense that they've been around Jesus because they've been around us who are seeking to live like Jesus and and speak like Jesus and minister like Jesus. Can I get an amen from anybody on that? I think we need a little bit more of that, a little bit more mindfulness. Thank you, Jeremiah, in the back. After traveling and encouraging the believers throughout Macedonia, and many commentators believe that Paul 
even in this period of time, went as far as the area of Illyricum, which is on the west coast of uh, modern-day Greece. In verse 2, we see that he came to Greece. That word is Hellas, which is uh, just actually a reference to the region of Achaia in southern Greece. So Paul may be going to Athens, but we know from other writings that Paul spent this time in the city of Corinth. He spent three months there. Now, Paul was not only encouraging the believers in his travels, he was also gathering a collection from these different churches throughout northern and southern Greece, gathering this special financial offering, a special financial love gift that he was going to take to the poverty-stricken believers in Jerusalem as a help to them. In fact, it's likely that the believers that Luke records for us in verse 4 were men that the different churches had designated to go with Paul to help bring this offering to Jerusalem. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth about this while he was still in Ephesus. Check out what Paul wrote to the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 7. Again, this is before he even got there. He said, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, this is Sunday, this was their gathering day, let each one of you lay aside something, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. So collect in advance. I don't want this to be weird and awkward once I get there. Like now all of a sudden Paul's here and, hey, everybody empty your pockets. Everybody give to this work. You know, he's like, no, do it before I get there. Have it ready. When I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia, and it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. Though the church in Jerusalem was never a home church or a a base of ministry for the apostle paul that was actually the church in syrian antioch for paul it didn't have to be that for paul to want to help bring about support for his fellow believers in jerusalem who were in need financially and in doing this paul was also encouraging and promoting the unity of the body of Christ between the Gentile and Jewish believers in different parts of the world. You can imagine that many of these believers, as far as Corinth or Macedonia, they had no relational connection to the church in Jerusalem. They didn't like know people there, like, oh, of course, like, oh, my friend, and I heard about how he's having a hard time, and you know, this famine's been going through the land. It's really affecting them and it's affecting their businesses and they're, having, they're, they're doing their best, best, but they can't really make it financially. Like, uh, of course, of course I want to give because I know somebody, I have a connection. And oftentimes that's how sort of we're spurred 
to come alongside someone else. There's some sort of relational connection. There's some sort of uh, emotional emphasis there. But that was most likely not likely for many of these people. Paul's saying, look, I want you to give to people you've never met. You may never meet them. But they're brothers and sisters in Christ. And just this emphasis on oneness. Look, we don't, you don't have to know them. You don't have to be close to them to be able to come alongside of them and to be a blessing to them because we're all one in Christ. We're the family of God together and family takes care of each other or, or it's supposed to. Paul stayed in Corinth. He ministered there for three months. He planned to sail to Syria from Corinth. Paul had made that journey before. Done it at the end of his second missionary journey. Except Paul found out that some of the Jews had plotted against him. Likely a plot to kill him while he was on the ship going to Syria. This would be an easy way to get rid of Paul, right? He's on a ship. He can't go anywhere. You're out in the middle of the ocean, middle of this Aegean Sea. He's not going to be able to escape if everybody on the boat is in on this plot to, you know, cast him overboard. But Paul finds out about it. He changes up his plans. And instead of sailing from, from uh, Corinth over to Syria, he decides to go back north again through Macedonia. But in Paul's new traveling crew, we see these men from Asia Minor and Macedonia joining Paul. They're all listed there for us in verse 4. And though some of these men might have joined Paul in his travels here because of their help with bringing the financial collection to Jerusalem, it wasn't uncommon for Paul to have a crew of people that would travel with him. These weren't his bodyguards. This isn't like celebrity pastor edition. They're his handlers. They, you know, handle his social media posts and, you know, make sure he has water and has a nice place to sleep. Like these were people who ministered alongside of Paul. And that Paul ministered to. They were people that he poured into and that they poured in and were a source of refreshing to him as well. But, but something else about this group that accompanied Paul is that all of these men were likely saved through Paul's ministry in one of his two missionary journeys before this, or, or maybe even during his time in Ephesus on this third missionary journey he was still currently on, which means that these people, these men were fruit of what God did through Paul's ministry as he preached Christ and made disciples of Christ. And, and now these men who were saved because Paul was willing to follow God's mission for his life, 
were now missionaries themselves who were following God's mission for their own life as they came alongside of Paul and ministered with him. And that's a powerful testimony to the saving and transforming and equipping work of God in a person's life. A testimony that he wants to see replicated still today in our lives. That we who have received the gospel would be people who radically live out the gospel and then bring, share that gospel with others. I'm encouraged by this. You know, we can oftentimes get this perspective of life and mission and ministry where it's like, okay, it's, it's those people. And, and you know what? Yeah, my life's been benefited. I've been changed by the Lord. He saved me. But it's almost like in some ways people can feel like, well, that's, but that would never be me. They're the missionary. They're the ones who, who's going around encouraging other people. They're the ones who is meeting up with people for coffee or having someone over for dinner. They're the one who is having a Bible study with someone else. It's them. But, but praise God that that's not the mentality that we see throughout the book of Acts. The ones who were saved by the mission of others became the ones who were sent on mission by others. These people have been saved and now they're a part of these local church families. And, and then all of a sudden it's like there's these opportunities to do something, to, to, to step out in faith. And, and while they were once the person who was just first receiving the gospel, that gospel had radically impacted them. And now it's like, God, use me. Send me, Lord, do something with my life. And when a body of believers are able to shift their perspective from, well, it's them. It's the church leaders. It's the gifted evangelist. It's, it's these other people who just seem really good at investing in others spiritually. When that perspective can be dismissed and we see that God is wanting us to be them <laughs> wanting us to be those people and ministry is going to happen to an even greater degree all of us are going to be ministered to as we seek to minister to others and not only that, but the work of the gospel is going to get out to an even greater degree when we're not waiting for a Sunday morning for the gospel to be preached, but we see that that opportunity is presented to us all the time. My wife and I were in 99 Ranch Market the other day. This lady sees us, sees that we were looking for something and didn't know where to find what we were looking for. So she just comes over and, hey, what are you, you looking for something? She starts talking to us. I know 14 languages and this, this, this. And she starts talking about all these things. And then at one point it was 
you know, she starts talking about Jesus. And it's clear that she's about to evangelize us. It was awesome. So I took the position of an atheist and I just let her have it. No, I didn't. I'm kidding. Guys, you don't know me better than that. I wouldn't do that. My wife says, oh, actually, my husband's a pastor. Oh, my gosh. And then we just, it was just cool. We had this sweet time of fellowship, but she was saying, like, I'll come here and I just share the gospel with people as I'm walking through the grocery store. It's like, that is so cool. But at one point in time, that lady was just someone who was lost and needed the gospel of Jesus Christ preached to her. And that happened. She received the grace of Jesus in her own life. Jesus took her from someone who was dead in sin and trespasses and and made her alive together in Christ Jesus, gave her the promise of eternal life. And now, because of the work that God's done in her life, this woman who originally was from Vietnam, now here in the States, living in the Bay Area, in a 99 Ranch market, sees herself as having an opportunity to bring that gospel to other people. She's not a church leader. She didn't have any position. She just knew that the the Jesus that she believed in was a Jesus that everybody else needed. I'm thankful that she tried to evangelize us. That encouraged me. That challenged me. I've said this before, but it's a lot easier to preach the gospel behind this nice wooden pulpit. It's safe back here. You expect it from me. But to do it in a grocery store, to do it at a gas station, to do it in front of my house when I'm talking to my neighbor, those are harder. And yet those are the moments that God is calling us into. All around us today, right now, in almost every store you go to, you're going to start hearing the name of Jesus in songs. Why don't we capitalize on that opportunity to say, hey, I know that Jesus. Do you know that Jesus? Jesus has saved me. And to be able to have those opportunities that we would see that God's calling us into his mission field, which is all around us, to just declare who Jesus is and what he's done. God wants to make us those living testimonies, those trophies of his grace that can be lifted up and and show others that, man, if God can save us, he can save them. Well, let's continue on. Verses five and six, we may potentially get done with this this morning. Verse five, these men going ahead waited for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. In these two verses, we see another shift in Luke's writing. Luke now again using the 
personal pronouns, we and us, again. Meaning that Luke joined Paul once more in his travels at this point in time. Luke's base of operations for life and ministry seemed to be in the city of Philippi, there in the northern region of Macedonia and northern Greece. And now here in Philippi, Luke rejoins Paul once again. Paul sent the rest of his team ahead to wait for him and Luke in Troas across the Aegean Sea. But Paul and Luke stuck around in Philippi until after the Days of Unleavened Bread ended, which means they stayed not only for that first Passover day, but the week celebration that followed it. And in five days, which was actually about four times longer than it should have taken them to travel by sea, they joined them at Troas where they spent a total of seven days. Now, you know, later on in 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about a bunch of different things that happened to him in ministry, like, you know, being, being uh, beaten with rods multiple times and flogged and shipwrecked. And there's only one po- point in the book of Acts where we see that Paul was shipwrecked. We haven't even gotten there yet. So somewhere in all of these different travels, there's two other times that Paul is literally shipwrecked. The ship sinks in the water. He's out in the sea somewhere. In fact, in one of those places, in one of those three times, it says that a night and a day, he was in the deep. And and so we wonder, like, we're not getting all of the details as we're traveling through here, but I would not want to keep sailing anymore. If I were Paul, I would give up. I'd say, let's just stick to the land. Like, that is, to be in the middle of an ocean with, like, it is dark and stuff's touching your feet. Like, no, no, no. Some of you are like, I don't go on TikTok, but I hear things. I know that's not even, that's like old, old news, old song. Anyways, moving on. But Paul, <laughs> obviously they have some pretty rough sailing here, but they, they do it. He's committed to uh, what God had called him to. He's willing to put himself in harm's way here oftentimes in a lot of these traveling uh, opportunities that he had. But we're told that at Troas, they spend a total of days, and this leads us into the account Luke now gives of a, of a situation that happened towards the end of Paul's week-long time of ministry in Troas in verses 7 through 12. And so let's actually just read through that, starting in verse 7. It says, Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. Don't worry, I won't go until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together, and in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep, and as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down, fell on him, and said, Dude, you shouldn't have fallen asleep while I was teaching. No, he didn't say that. Paul went down, he fell on him, and embracing him, said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. And when he came up, 
broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till daybreak. He departed and they brought the young man in alive and they were not a little comforted. That's a way of saying they were greatly comforted. Comfort wasn't little. It was a lot. There's a lot of comfort going on. This situation came near the end of their seven-day stay in Troas. And on the first day of the week, this was Sunday, we see that the disciples, the, the church there in Troas, came together to break bread. This was them coming together for an agape feast. Pastor Bill referenced that when he was taking us and highlighting some of the things that Paul was correcting the Corinthian believers on throughout 1 Corinthians. But they had come together for an agape feast, a, a, a potluck sort of meal. We're not the inventors of the potluck here in America. This was happening long ago and was very likely probably the best meal of the week for many, especially those who were slaves in that day. It was probably the nicest amount of food that they got coming together for this love feast, but also to take the Lord's Supper together. So they came together on a Sunday, really, for a communion service, sort of like what we're doing today. We're told that Paul was ready to depart the next day. So Paul and Luke must have initially arrived in Troas that previous Monday, six days earlier, and they were about to leave on Monday the next day. And as this was going to be Paul's last opportunity to minister to the church there, we see that he spoke to them. And there's a couple different words here when referencing him speaking in the Greek language that would lead us to see that it wasn't just him, you know, uh, delivering a, a sermon for multiple hours long, but that along with that sermon, he had a dialogue with them. It, probably some Q&A time. They were conversing at points during this. Their Sunday gathering likely started in the evening since this was a work day for many of these people. But even with that, Paul's time of communicating God's word in this evening worship service, uh, this worship gathering might have lasted upwards of six hours before it was interrupted. The darkness of that late night wasn't a deterrent to them because they lit many lamps so they could keep going. They wouldn't have to stop in that upper room to break bread. The, hearing the Apostle Paul share God's word with them, get their last bit of time in with him before he left. But as Paul continued on till midnight, we find that there was a young man named Eutychus who had been sitting in a windowsill, maybe because it was so packed that that was the only place he could find to sit and listen, or maybe he was just getting so tired that he's like, put me by some fresh air. Kind of like if you're driving and you're getting tired, you roll your windows down, you start like smacking your face lightly and trying to find something to like distract yourself. And maybe this is Eutychus here. Maybe as a, a slave himself had already worked a full days of work and so now he's there he's worked all day and now Paul's been preaching for six hours it's dark there's lamps there's all this mood lighting sort of thing it's kind of nice and maybe Paul's voice has become a little melodic 
and, and Eutychus just starts to fall into this. You ever had that where it's like you just can't help it? Like you are, you're trying to stay awake, but it's like sinking in. Like you're just, you're, 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 there's no way you're getting out. Like it's, it's coming and that's Eutychus here. He's sinking into this deep sleep. Sleep overcame him as Paul was sharing the word. And this young man fell completely to sleep and then fell out of the window from the third story and died upon impact. Clearly, the moral of this story, this account, is that falling asleep in church is a it can be hazardous to your health. So stay awake during the message at all costs. Because you don't want to end up like Eutychus, am I right? Yeah. These are this is like those passages of scripture that pastors love to like give themselves an excuse for why they're so long-winded and such and I actually, funny thing, I, I don't get mad when people fall asleep in church. I, I'll see people occasionally. Some of you are like, oh, he does see me occasionally. <laughs> I'll see somebody and they're just dozing. Oh, they're doing their best. They're trying their darndest to like keep those eyes open. They wish they had toothpicks, you know, just like prop them. And, and you know what? There's a, there's a passage in scripture that says, and so he gives his beloved sleep. You know, sometimes it's just like, you know what, you're, you tried, you've been working all week, maybe you worked late the night before, you got kids, kids are up all night, your dog's up all night, whatever, and, and you know, it's like, that's okay. You know, it's interesting that Eutychus is not put in a bad light here. Paul doesn't go down and rebuke him after he revives, or like brings him back from the dead. Dude, what were you doing? I was preaching the word of God. Like, what are you doing? Like, he doesn't get mad at him and like smack him around afterwards. You know, some people have looked at this and go, oh, just, he wasn't actually, they thought he was dead. Paul embraced him. He was really actually okay. You know, but we have to remember Luke is a physician. He's a doctor. He's, He's there on hand Luke knew if the guy was dead or not. He wouldn't say he was taken up dead unless the kid was actually dead. Paul goes down, he embraces him. You know, obviously, someone heard him or saw him fall out. They rush down to the ground level. They see that he's dead. People are checking his pulse, maybe his breathing, however it worked at that point in time. Paul stops speaking, comes down to where this young dead man was falls on him and embraces him this is sort of reminiscent of what the old testament prophets elijah and elisha had each done in scripture each one having a moment in their ministry where god used them in this sort of way to bring someone back from the dead and all paul says is don't trouble yourselves for his life is in him modern language don't freak out it's cool He's alive again. So they bring the young man back into the house. They're greatly comforted. And and Paul, once he came back to that upper room, broke bread and ate. So they 
now at midnight are sharing in this agape feast. They observe the Lord's Supper communion together. And then Paul still talked a long while more, even until the sun came out the next morning. And then he departed. According to pastor and Bible commentator Warren Warren Wearsby, Luke here gives a brief report of a local church service in Troas. And and from it, we learn five different elements involved in how they met and worshiped the Lord. Those five elements were that, number one, it took place on the Lord's day. Number two, it, it involved the Lord's people. Number three, it involved the Lord's supper. Number four, it was centered upon the Lord's message. And number five, it was marked by the Lord's power. I just love that because each of those things are present as we gather. The specifics of it might differ. Might not all be the same. Things, you know, there can be different things that happen in a gathering of believers, but these believers prioritize meeting together, meeting on the Lord's day. Jesus had risen from the dead on a Sunday. The church was birthed on a Sunday, on the day of Pentecost. And they met on Sundays, although I'm no doubt they met on other days of the week as well. But they met with a definite purpose to gather to break bread, to remember the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. And as they gathered, the word of God was preached. There was fellowship, there was feasting. Even though we're not told it explicitly, I don't have any doubts that there were songs, that there were hymns, that there were spiritual songs that were being sung. Prayer was taking place, body ministry was happening. But understand, Eutychus being brought back from death was a special miraculous occurrence as we only see once in peter's ministry in acts where god used him to raise someone from the dead and only once in paul's ministry in the book of acts where god used him to bring back someone from the dead and that's right here with this young man eutychus who died during a sermon but while we might not be seeing people brought back from death, something possible only because the Lord's power was at work. When disciples of Jesus gather in the name of Jesus, humble themselves before Jesus, are desperate for Jesus, when they lift their hearts and voices and hands in worship of Jesus, when they receive and seek to live out the word of Jesus and and seek to make their lives all about Jesus and his kingdom and his gospel, we must believe that the power of Jesus will be at work in our midst. You know how many times we go about things with little to no expectation that the Lord's actually going to show up in something. How many of us are actually mindful on Sunday mornings as we're getting ready to gather with the people of God and we're saying, today, Jesus is going to meet with me. 
I'm going to hear the very word of God. He's got something for me today. How many of us constantly live in that state of mindfulness, that state of expectation? And maybe you do. Maybe that's you all the time. Maybe each day you wake up and you're going, Lord, you've got something for me today. You're going to move today. You're going to lead me today. Your spirit is inside of me. No doubt your spirit's going to guide me. But I would be willing to go out on a limb and say that that's, while that could be us sometimes, that's probably not us all the time. God wants to use the gathering of his people to accomplish things that only he can accomplish. And we can easily discount the importance of this gathering. We can minimize it. We can make excuses for why we don't really need to be a part of it. And there are many today who do. But guys, there is great value to this amazing thing that Jesus created and spilled his blood for to make us a part of called the church. And the power of Jesus is not something that we have to be hopeful for for some, maybe some special thing, special time, special occurrence, special opportunity of ministry. We have Jesus. We have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in us. What are we lacking today? Are we lacking an opportunity? No. Opportunities abound. But we need to be in that spot where we're listening and we're ready and we're expectant. That we don't minimize the things that God has actually maximized in Scripture. These are valuable times that God is using in ways both seen and unseen. And I'm thankful that you all are a part of that. But let's read our last few verses here, verses 13 through 16. It says, Then we went ahead to the ship and sailed to Asos. They're intending to take Paul on board, for so he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. We sailed from there, and the next day came opposite Chios. The following day we arrived at Samos and stayed at Tregillium. The next day we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Got a bunch of different stops there of Paul and his team as they're traveling down the southwest coast of modern-day Turkey. That was Asia Minor. Hitting around some of these were little islands that they stopped at and stayed the night before resuming their journey and traveling another stretch and stopping again. 
But I, I wondered when looking at verse 13, you know, why did Paul decide to go alone on foot from Troas to Asos while the rest of his crew went ahead by ship? Like, was he just, did they, everyone was really stinky and he just needed a break? <laughs> like, you know, what, what was it that he decided, you know what, I'd rather not be on the ship right now you guys take the easy being on the ship part where you don't have to do anything, and I'm going to hoof it by land by myself for 25 miles. You know, I, I think it's highly possible that Paul just needed some alone time to seek the Lord while walking that roughly 25-mile stretch of road inland as the time was drawing closer to him getting to Jerusalem. And, and Paul needed to prepare his heart before the Lord for what was going to happen once he got there. We gain a little more insight into this and what Paul is going to share with the Ephesian elders in Miletus in Acts chapter 20 verses 22 through 24. But Paul says that, Paul says this in that passage, Acts 20 verse 22, and see, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself that I, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. See, before Paul ever got to Miletus, he says that there was uncertainty about what exact, exactly was going to happen to him once he got to Jerusalem, except that the Holy Spirit himself was testifying in every city that chains and tribulations or trouble awaited him. It's likely Paul needed that time on foot to really just seek the Lord, to prepare and settle his heart before the Lord, to have a peace and confidence come from the Lord, but that as he did that, that God did a strengthening work in Paul inwardly so that Paul would become unmovable, firm, steadfast, no matter what he faced. The, the time Paul spent alone with the Lord as he walked, as he was surrounded by God's creation, was time that God used powerfully in Paul's life. And I, and I don't doubt that along with that walk even, you know, the time with the believers in Troas at that Sunday night service, his time traveling and being surrounded with that group of solid Christian brothers had all been a part of God fortifying Paul inwardly. But God did that so that in spite of the danger he knew awaited him in Jerusalem, he could actually be in a place of mind where he would you know, be in a hurry to get to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. I don't know about you, but if I knew something really bad was going to be happening to me when I got somewhere, I wouldn't be in a hurry. I'd be taking my time. I'd be like, let's go some other places. <laughs> oh, oh, you know somebody that needs Jesus? They're all the way in America? Let's do it. I'll get to Jerusalem eventually. I'll put the chains and tribulations thing off till a later time. But not Paul. 
He was sick. He was a sick man. No, just kidding. Verses 14 and 15, they give us some of these different stops as they're traveling down Miletus, this last place that they arrived in, was, was a port town on the southwest coast of Asia Minor. It's about 30 miles south of where the city of Ephesus was located. And in verse 16, we see that Paul sailed past Ephesus, most likely because he knew that if he had gone there, he wouldn't have been able to make it a quick visit. You know, there would have been so many people to see, he probably would have started to see ministry opportunities and when he, he would have just kind of got himself lost in those things and then he wouldn't have been able to make it uh, to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. So it's from Miletus that he's going to call uh, to the church elders in Ephesus to have them come to Miletus and, and meet with him. And Paul's going to uh, spend some time with them and uh, share things with them that are really important and close to his heart, as we're going to see in our next couple of studies. But I'm going to have the worship team come back up. You know, I, I think as we consider all the different things, and there's some different elements in here that I believe that God would have as points of application to take away from our study this morning, whether that's our use of our words, whether that's how we come with expectation whether that's the importance of being surrounded with other solid believers that we can pour into and that can pour into us. Whether maybe for some today, the problem isn't falling asleep in church, it's that some are just falling asleep spiritually. There's a place in the book of Romans where Paul warns against being asleep spiritually that there's a spiritual slumber that some at times find themselves in maybe it's just coming to a point of apathy or complacency or compromise where we might even be going through the motions but you know what it's almost like we're just sleepwalking in our spiritual life and if that's you today god's saying wake up Wake up. Wake up to what he's doing. He's working. Wake up to what he's calling you into. Wake up to the mission field that he's placed you in. Wake up to the amazing love of God that he's wanting to pour out upon you every single day. Wake up to this amazing relationship that you and I have been invited into because of the amazing grace of God that's been extended to you and to me, that we would not take that for granted. But just as these believers took of the Lord's Supper together, gathering on the first day of the week, just like we're still doing today, we're going to do that this morning. But before we do that, if there's anybody here this morning, and you know what? Before you even take of the elements, because this, this is for people who have already received the salvation of Jesus. If you've not received 
the love and grace and forgiveness and salvation of Jesus personally. That's where Jesus is speaking to you today. He wants to deal with that thing today. Because our sin separates us from a holy God. If that's anybody here today, and you need to just first receive Jesus' free gift of salvation, I'm going to ask if you would just stand up where you're at. Don't worry, you're walking. I get where you're at. If that's you today, but in all seriousness, if you need to receive the grace and forgiveness of Jesus for the very first time, I'd love to pray for you. Is there anybody this morning that you stand, make that decision for the Lord? Well, then as a body of believers this morning, we get to do something amazing. This is not a tradition that man came up with. This was Jesus himself eating a Passover meal with his disciples the night he was going to be betrayed. The night before, just hours before he would be crucified. And he took the bread and the juice and he used these things to point to himself that for every generation of believer to follow, we'd be able to look at these things as I spill it on the ground. And do these things in remembrance of Jesus. To commune with our Savior. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 26. He said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant. A brand new thing that I'm doing, that I'm bringing in, in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Paul says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what we're doing. We're remembering and we're proclaiming. We're remembering. Our minds are going, Lord, you did this. I read this in your word. You, you actually, your body was broken. Your sinless body, your perfect, spotless body. Lord, you were nailed to a Roman cross in all your perfection. And then your blood, your sinless blood, your atoning, substitutionary blood was shed on that cross, bleeding from head to toe to display your great love, to provide forgiveness and to bring about a new covenant of grace that you and I are no longer trying to connect with God through Mosaic law never fully being able to live up to that measuring rod of perfection, but now because of Jesus' perfection, because of his sacrifice, because he paid it in full, you and I get to enter into that by grace. Amen? It's amazing. Let's 
Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your body that was broken. Lord, your blood that was shed. Lord, thank you that we're just doing something that believers for almost 2,000 years have been doing since the night that you instituted it. That just as these believers in Troas, they gathered together as the people of God from all different backgrounds, social statuses, by different skin colors. They've been from different areas. Maybe they even spoke different languages. But they had been made one in Christ Jesus. And they gathered together to remember you, to get their minds upon you, to, to worship you, to take in your word, to fellowship. And Lord, your power was present in their midst. Lord, we desire those same things in our gatherings, Lord, to see the power of Jesus on display. And so, Lord, we remember this morning your body that was broken for us. Lord, we take this bread this morning in remembrance of you. Go ahead and eat the bread. Lord, we remember as well, Lord, your blood that was shed, Lord, the blood of the new covenant, Lord, your blood that brings forgiveness of sins. Lord, we recall, if we're willing to in the moment, how great our sin is. Lord, how great that disconnect was, how great that chasm was, Lord, between us and you because of our sin. That, Lord, your blood brought us near. Lord, that your blood took us from being an enemy to being a friend, to being a son and daughter, to being a citizen of the kingdom of God. Jesus, thank you that not only did you pay in full the debt that we owed, that Jesus, you finished the work that, Lord, we can't add anything to it, even if we tried. That, Jesus, your grace is enough. And so, Lord Jesus, we drink this juice this morning in remembrance of you. Let's drink the juice together. Lord, we're thankful for you. Thankful for this time today. Lord, we're thankful for the many words that you've left us in the pages of your word. That, Lord, we could find encouragement, find comfort, find strength, Lord, find hope. Be challenged and convicted and corrected. We need all of it, Lord. And Lord, we're thankful. God, would you help us to 
take things away today, Lord, that we can apply to our lives today and this week, Lord. Help us to be mindful, Lord, of the people that you placed around us. Help us to see, Lord, that you've called us, each and every one of us, to be on mission for Jesus. Lord, give us a boldness in these days to proclaim you, Lord, to make much of you with our lives. Lord, would both our words and our actions, Lord, show, Lord, your great love. Lord, thank you. We, we praise you now through these songs. Lord, we continue in this attitude of worship this morning as we close out our time just singing about you. <laughs> Reminding ourselves of who you are and what you've done. And so, Lord, bless this time. Continue to pour out your spirit, Father, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.